Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from Stats. I'm Damian Garde, recording from Stats New York City Outpost. I'm Adam Feuerstein, coming to you from Stats Worldwide Headquarters in Boston. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from Stats Outpost in San Francisco. It is Thursday, February 13th, and before we get into the podcast, this show is coming up on its 100th episode. And to celebrate that, we want to hear from you, the listener. If you have questions, comments, or even a brief rant, you can call us at 617-981-4714 and leave a voicemail, and you might hear your voice once that 100th episode rolls around. Now, here's what we're going to talk about this week. In countries where the gene therapy Zolgensma is not yet approved, parents are relying on a lottery to get treatment for their children with a deadly rare disease. Our colleague Andrew Joseph joins us to explain. The pediatrician Priscilla Chan, who is married to Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg, has become one of the most influential philanthropists in science. We'll play clips from my recent interview with her. Finally, healthcare investor Les Funtleiter joins us for a chat about the current and future state of his line of work. But first, a word about Stat Plus. Enjoying the read out loud? Subscribe to Stat Plus to get stories like these. Stat Plus delivers daily market moving coverage from across biotech, pharma, and the life sciences. Subscribe today to get access to breaking news, exclusives, and analysis from our award winning team. Subscribe to Stat Plus today at statnews.com slash subscribe. And as a special thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener, enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD, P-O-D. For many U.S. families affected by the rare disease known as spinal muscular atrophy, last year's FDA approval of the gene therapy Zolgensma was life-changing. The treatment, which is made by Novartis, has shown dramatic effects on infants with the most severe form of the disease, which is almost always fatal. But for parents in countries where Zolgensma isn't yet approved, the wait has been agonizing. SMA is a progressive neuromuscular disease, meaning everyday children go without treatment, their situation worsens. Some might die of the disease before their home countries approve the gene therapy. With that in mind, Novartis came up with a novel idea. The company is running a lottery for SMA patients outside the U.S., planning to give out as many as 100 doses of Zolgensma through regular drawings throughout the year. So our stat colleague, Andrew Joseph, spoke to parents with children on the waiting list for the Zolgensma lottery, and he joins us now to talk about it. Drew, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So for starters, how does this lottery work exactly? So it's basically like a a drawing that start. The first one was last Monday, and they're going to draw a couple names every two weeks. A little unclear how many they're going to pick each time. They're going to do 50 doses um, in the first half of this year. Some patients, neurologists will just get a call that they've been selected for this. So Drew, the ethics of this type of lottery are, I guess they're just, they're complicated, and that's putting it mildly. in the course of your reporting the story, how did people that you spoke with, particularly the, the parents of the kids with SMA, frame the choices that are being made here? So I think if you're a parent of a child with SMA, it's not actually a choice. You may not love the idea of putting your kid's name in a lottery. It's kind of implicitly putting families against each other. But if this is a way to get a treatment for your kid, like you're going to do it. And, you know, the families I spoke to for the story, I actually found all of them through GoFundMe. They had been trying to raise the literally millions of dollars it would cost to buy this drug because it is the world's most expensive drug and see if there was some way they could buy it themselves and then get it delivered in the U.S. where it is approved. So these families are, you know, will take any option they can get. So as you mentioned, Drew, Novartis plans to give away 100 doses of Zilgensma through this lottery. Tell us a little bit more about how that number was derived and whether the drug maker could give away more treatments. Novartis, of course, is a 
money-making enterprise, and they paid a lot to acquire Zilgensma. But where's the line between profit and charity? It's 50 doses in the first half of this year with up to 100 total throughout the year. And I'm honestly not sure exactly how they picked those numbers, but what the company has said more generally is that there are limits to how many doses they can produce. And Zilgensma, as you said earlier, is a gene therapy, and these are really complicated things to make. It's not like a pill. And so I believe there's only one manufacturing facility up and running right now, and there are two more planned to open this year, but it's like they have um, limits on what they can produce. For profit and charity, I guess that's for Novartis to decide how many doses they're willing to give away because the doses in the lottery are given out for free. But they're having questions about whether the company has done enough to address the scarcity issues that's been raised by some ethicists. But, you know, at the same time, Novartis also needs to keep enough doses on hand for the patients in the countries where it is approved. So right now that's the U.S. So, Drew, you made clear kind of how the families feel in this situation. And, and I think we understand Novartis's motivations to whatever degree. But, you know, you mentioned the ethicists you spoke to. How do they look at this as a solution for, for this scarcity issue that's very real? So I think everyone acknowledges that this is like a little bizarre. It's just frankly makes everyone feel a little bit weird, I think. And the company has said it's not like ideal either, but it's the best they could come up with and the fairest way they could come up with. But what ethicists have said is that in situations where scarcity is truly an issue and you have a limited resource, a lottery is perhaps the fairest way you can dole something out. Um, that way you take out questions of of money, of who has connections, of who sees the most powerful neurologist, for example. There have been some questions about whether Novartis should prioritize the sickest patients, meaning probably the kids who have the most advanced disease. And the thinking is that maybe a child is in sort of earlier stages, he or she could wait until the drug becomes approved in his or her home country or until there's more available. But Novartis said it is didn't want to sort of put its finger on the scale in any way. So that's why it went like a pure lottery. Now, a lottery wouldn't be necessary if Zolgensima was approved in other parts of the world beyond the United States. So how soon will those approvals come through and where will they come through? What the company has said is that European regulators are expected to decide on it this quarter. So it could be quite soon. And Japanese officials before the middle of the year. And as for Canada and Australia, that might not come until 2021. So it's not too far off. But I guess two things to that. If you're a parent of a child with SMA, as Damien mentioned earlier, one, it's progressive. And so, you know, kids are just going to get sicker and sicker and they're going to lose more and more function in their muscles and their ability to breathe and their ability to swallow. So you feel a deep sense of urgency to get it sooner. The second thing is both in the U.S. approval and in the lottery, it's only available for kids um, before their second birthday. And so people are worried that their kids will essentially age out from being available to get Zolgensma if it's approved or through the lottery. So that's why there's some urgency there. So as you just highlighted, the choices being made here are heartbreaking because with SMA, time is the enemy. And there's probably no better example of that than the family you wrote about at the end of the story. Tell us about that family. Winnie Luck Taylor and her husband, Corey Taylor, are Canadian, and their daughter, Skye, was born last summer. And like a lot of families, it took them a couple months to get a diagnosis. They noticed that Sky was not hitting her developmental milestones. She wasn't lifting her head. She couldn't really lift her arms or her legs. And so she was eventually diagnosed with SMA, I think around four months old. Um, and around that time, the parents were told to take her to the hospital because she had a cough and respiratory issues are really serious with kids with SMA because they have trouble breathing. And basically, the family was in a hospital in Toronto for a month and a half and Sky died in December. 
And um, I found them. Similarly, they had been trying to fundraise to buy Zolgensma. And in talking with Winnie, the mother, she kind of acknowledged that maybe Sky was so sick that Zolgensma wouldn't have been able to help her. And Sky was on um, another SMA treatment that many of the kids in the lottery are also on called Spinraza from Biogen. And it wasn't helping her because, you know, maybe she was so sick. But I think it just speaks to the fact that when and where a child is born um, has huge impacts on what kind of healthcare they can get and also what kind of drugs are available to them. And what Winnie, the mom, told me was she sometimes wondered what would have happened if Sky had been born in summer 2020 as opposed to summer uh, 2019. Because Ontario, the province where they live, has started to test infants for SMA now that there is one, going to be two eventually treatments available to kids with SMA. So maybe Sky would have been diagnosed sort of soon after birth instead of at month four and could have started on Spinraza earlier and maybe it would have had more of an effect. And then, of course, maybe Zolgensma would have been available to them. Drew, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much. We believe that the future we all want for our children is possible. We set a goal. Can we all together work to cure, prevent, or manage all disease within our children's lifetime? So that was the pediatrician, Dr. Priscilla Chan, and she was speaking at a big press conference back in 2016. She was announcing that she and her spouse, Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg, would be spending $3 billion over a decade to fund basic science research. So it's been three and a half years since that announcement. Rebecca decided to check up on their work. Rebecca interviewed Chan and talked to scientists and other observers as part of a new profile. So Rebecca, at sort of a high level, what are Chan and Zuckerberg spending their billions of dollars on? So their focus has been building tools and tech infrastructure for basic science. They're doing this under the auspices of the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, which is the LLC that the couple set up to do their philanthropy. And so far, uh, as I mentioned, they've allocated a budget of $3 billion for their work in science. I ran the numbers on this one out of curiosity and compared that allocation to their $80 billion fortune. Without revealing my precise net worth, though you can probably guess the ballpark, this would be the equivalent of me donating a couple thousand dollars to science over a decade. However, that said, you know, this is still a lot of money for uh, researchers who are working in basic science, and their contributions are certainly making an an impact. Uh, One thing that I found pretty interesting is, is how they have chosen this broader field of tech infrastructure, of tools, rather than picking a particular area. You know, Sean Parker picked cancer immunotherapy, Bill Gates picked infectious disease. Uh, So it's interesting to kind of see that much broader focus. So Rebecca, does that mean they would never get into kind of biotech or traditional drug development type stuff? You know, I asked Priscilla that question when I interviewed her the other day. Here's what she had to say. We haven't run towards that work because we feel like there's a lot of good support existing infrastructure and funders in that space that are doing a great job. And I'm not sure we bring added tools, expertise to really contribute in a new way, but we're pretty excited about what we can do right now in the basic science world with our current approach. So having done that interview, what do you find most interesting about Priscilla Chan? Yeah, so 
She is a pediatrician. She stepped away from full-time medical practice to run the initiative a few years back. And I find her to be like a surprisingly kind of private person in this role. It seems, you know, in some ways that she chose this life of being a philanthropist, but in other ways, you know, she didn't choose it either. You know, I think had she not married this particular person, she might be a pediatrician just sort of anonymously practicing. So I think she kind of straddles an interesting line um, between public and the private. So Rebecca, what's the dynamic between the two of them like? So I asked Priscilla that question from the lens of of how they think about science. You know, he thinks about it from like an engineering perspective of like, how do you answer unknown questions? And what are the moonshots that we can support to see or do something previously impossible? And I spend more time, you know, really thinking about how do we make sure that that net improves patient lives. And so our conversations are both exciting and frustrating. So this is maybe a bit of a cynical question, but Facebook, not the most popular commercial entity in the world right now. And so I'm curious, you know, to what extent might the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative and and the philanthropy kind of be a means of distracting from the company's otherwise bad Q score? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a critique that you hear a lot of. Um, it was remarkable. I, I did a story a couple weeks back about an announcement that uh, Chan Zuckerberg Initiative made. Uh, they'd be funding 30 patient groups that are working on rare diseases. Like pretty straightforward story, like not a whole lot to critique on that one. Uh, it's nice to give away money to, uh, to patient groups. But my notifications on Twitter were just crazy. Everyone was so mad. Like I was just getting all these notifications about how Facebook needs to pay its taxes and like people mad about Cambridge Analytica. It's just wild how strong reaction Facebook generates in in people. I think it speaks to concerns about privacy as well as anger about billionaires and and income inequality in the United States. So, Rebecca, what is the next step or or steps for the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative and their work in basic science? Yeah, so I think the big question for them is sort of where do you go from here? You know, they set this wildly ambitious goal to cure, prevent, or manage all diseases um, by 2100. So one benefit of that is is that presumably they, they won't be around to uh, be measured as to whether they have achieved their goal uh, by then. But, you know, if they're going to come anywhere near that goal, they're going to have to start knocking out certain diseases. And they're going to need a lot more money and a lot more progress uh, to to do that or or even begin to do that. You know, if you're focusing on on basic science and tools, that's great and and that's helpful for scientists. Uh, But you have to get to the clinic if you're going to start curing one disease, much less all the diseases. Less Fun Lighter is a longtime healthcare investor and an old friend of mine. 
And when I say old, I mean, of course, mature and wise. Les and I have parallel experiences in healthcare. He started his professional investing career just over two decades ago, which is around the same time that I made the switch from tech reporting to biotech. So today, Les is a healthcare portfolio manager at E-Squared Capital. He's also an author of the book called Healthcare Investing. He was in Boston recently to give a guest lecture at Tufts University. So I asked him to stop by the stat office for a podcast chat about the current and future state of healthcare investing. So Les, welcome to The Read Out Loud. Thank you for having me. So Les, we want you to compare and contrast biotech investing today versus when you started on Wall Street. The science, of course, has gotten a lot more complex. So how do you adapt? That's an excellent question. Compared to a long time ago, which in now two decades is now officially a long time ago, uh, it's actually gotten a lot more professional. As Adam will remember, back in the 90s, uh, biotech investing was the Wild West. We didn't have the sophisticated scientist folks actually either creating companies or analyzing companies. And now over the last 20 years, it's become a lot more sophisticated, both on the research side and also on the company development side. On the one hand, it's great because now we have far fewer companies that are invented around promotion. Uh, so that's a good thing. But the uh, characters have mostly exited the industry and it's sort of not as interesting. I wonder, though, for you, like how hard is it for you to keep track of, you know, the science that underlies a lot of the investments that you make? I mean, again, when we started, like there was just lung cancer. Maybe there was like lung cancer and small cell lung cancer. You know, now there's all the different genetic subtypes. That must be difficult to figure out from an investment standpoint. It is. I mean, so there are a couple of things there. First, I'm a small molecule guy by background. So um, the second you get to big molecules, I have to hit the stacks. For the more, the the earlier stage, and this will have to do with our more of our venture portfolio, if there's science we really don't understand, we will either call experts in the field uh, of the new science or don't invest. Because a lot of the, particularly when you get into cellular therapies, there are nuances that if you're not looking at it every day, you're likely to miss, and we don't want to miss those. It tends to happen more in the venture portfolio than in the public portfolio, where the products are a little bit more mature. So yeah, we do require more outside help than maybe we used to. So in biotech, we often see situations where stock market hype gets way ahead of the fundamentals. There are gene therapy companies, mRNA companies, or CRISPR companies that carry multi-billion dollar valuations, even though the clinical data are still at very early stages, or, or there may not be any clinical data at all. How do you deal with situations like that? Well, the first thing I'd say is thank goodness for misvaluations, because if there were, if things weren't misvalued, I wouldn't have a job, and I'd actually have to get a real job, like journalism or something. <laughs> oh, um, that, that's not a real job. Uh, so uh, <laughs> th this is back to foundational principles of investing. So Benjamin Graham said, and I'm, I may paraphrase now, but in the short run, the uh, market is a voting machine. In the long run, it's a weighing machine. Ultimately, valuations will come to reflect the true underlying value of the company. It just takes a long time. How we deal, we are very disciplined in terms of valuation. And we say there are three mechanisms. Uh, well, there's actually three and a half. The income approach, which is usually some form of risk-adjusted MPV. Uh, there's a comparable approach, market approach. And then there's the asset approach, which we tend to use, which is sort of recreation value. Fourth one, which Adam is, so, so knows about, is the finger in the air approach. 
uh, which uh, is more widely used on Wall Street than I think they'd let on. But if the valuations can pass muster with the three different mechanisms we use, we tend to be spot on. But sometimes to your point about multi-billion dollar valuations, that's usually one or two standard deviations away from what we think fair value is, and we probably would invest. That tends to be more common on the public side. However, in the last couple of years, we've seen valuations on the private side uh, be pretty high up there too. And so we would tend to pass on those. So let's give us your best ever and worst ever biotech investments. Like what's been a great winner and, and maybe one where you made a mistake? Well, let me start with my worst ever because it was something I, I blew. It wasn't an investment so much as it was a forecast. I actually thought Pfizer's inhaled insulin was going to be a real uh, drug. <laughs> oh, and, um, that, was, that was the insulin bong. Right, the bong insulin. You know, I mean, <laughs> who doesn't like a bong? Uh, they were 10 years before their time, apparently. So yeah, I did think it was in my models to be a good drug, and it turned out to be a bust. I mean, it wouldn't have made a difference to Pfizer anyway. Um, Pfizer was one of my perpetual whipping boys for years. We were short. We made money, but it was something that, eh, in retrospect, I wish I hadn't done. The best biopharma investment I had, um, I think by a long margin, was Pharmaset. I was running mutual fund at the time for Miller Tayback, and we bought Pharmaset at like $5. Well, it went gangbusters, and we had a 1% position, which is our custom then. And towards the end, it had grown so much, it was um, a 5% position in the portfolio, and my risk managers were losing their minds because it had done so well. So the beginning of any year always brings high expectation for more biotech deal making, particularly mergers and acquisitions. You said murders and acquisitions? <laughs> Sorry, sometimes that's what it's like. Yeah, um, it is like that. Too. Yeah. So this January has come and gone with very little deal activity. Does that worry you at all? Um, no, we don't preface our investments on uh, M&A possibilities. And also, I, I should say, too, that at one time in my life, I was in charge of mergers uh, for a, a pharma company. So I have a sort of a more nuanced view of M&A. I don't think pharma thinks the way Wall Street thinks. Wall Street thinks everything's for sale. Pharma, it takes a, a much different view, and it often has to do with more with internal politics than a great strategic investment on the part of pharma. So I think maybe it's just a question of there were a lot of deals done in the fourth quarter, and they just needed time internally to absorb them and think about what's next. So in the meantime, how active have you been investing internationally, particularly in the, uh, the biotech scene in China? Well, we have one a biotech company based in China called Xilabs that we have a position in. Actually, I have to say, most of my biotech investing is actually happening in South America because I don't know that people necessarily know, but there's a big life science hub developed in Santiago, Chile. And it's somewhat similar to China in the sense that expats or people from South America have worked in the U.S. and have gone back home and have started biotechs. So I suspect you're going to see things from South America. We've seen things in Africa, Southeast Asia. So I th I, China is not the only game in town in uh, biotech anymore. And I think in the next five to 10 years, uh, we're going to see more. Yeah, I bet. So lastly, we would be remiss if we didn't get your take or, or Wall Street's perspective on the coronavirus outbreak. How worried are you about it, if at all? I would say I'm not particularly worried. I'd also make the observation. So when I wrote the first edition of Healthcare Investing, this was 2009, and I specifically addressed zoonotic diseases, which this clearly is. 
and specifically from South China, also Southern China, which this is. We've known about these issues for a really long time. This is not the last viral infection we've seen skip from animals to humans. Uh, it's a problem. It has a lot to do with agricultural practices, but also global warming and urbanization. These are all coming together. So we will see more of these. Uh, so I'm not particularly worried about this one, but I, I think that there'll be worse ones coming. But to your point about hype, certainly if I had anything that looked like an antiviral against corona, I would be uh, pitching investors today. And on that foreboding note, Les, thanks for joining us. Thank you. For another episode of the Read Out Loud. Thank you to Hyacinth Epinado who produced this week's episode. Alyssa Ambrose is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Please call and leave us a voicemail uh, for our hundredth episode. That's six one seven nine eight one four seven one four. We really do appreciate the feedback and the questions, so thank you. And of course, if you like what we do, please leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week. Thank you.